Oh god. Oh man, this is gonna be a cough heavy episode. We're gonna talk. Mm-hmm. About Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I don't have a wind up this week. I just <laughs> I was thinking about it and I was like, I'm not even gonna fuck around. We just Yeah. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Directed by someone that I forgot. Uh, written by Charlie Kaufman, who is well known for doing this kind of thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, being John Malkovich. Yeah, yeah. That okay. was Kaufman. Okay. Um, he collaborated with Spike Jones a fair amount. Oh, did he do her? No. So her, the best way I've heard it described is... Spike Jones managed to do a Charlie Kaufman movie without Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's the that's the, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think he wrote that movie as well. Okay. Spike did. Yeah. Um <laughs> But yeah, this sort of like whoa out there what if let's think about this but also like character heavy and like deeply like unsettling mm-hmm. kind of way mm-hmm. like drama. Yeah. I don't, I, it's hard to pin it down, but it's got like a very particular brand and oh. feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Charlie Kaufman wrote mm-hmm. this movie. Plot, plot synopsis? Yeah, so this is about a universe in which you can get an operation and have your memories of your relationship erased. So this is, is a medical procedure that's done. It's thing people do commonly. It's uh, it's what do you say? It's one of these like near future mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of sci-fi movies. Yeah, like explicitly, like like everything else about it, they live in our world. In you know, movie was in two thousand four, so in our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Jim Carrey first finds out about the procedure, even he's like. This can't be real. This isn't real. That's yeah. not how the world works. Yeah. That's not... This doesn't exist. And they're like, no, it does exist. And they have to, like, prove it to him that it's real. hmm Yeah. But it is very much real. And so, yeah, this is basically about a relationship between Jim Carrey and um, Kate Winslet, mm-hmm. Clementine, and Joel. And, yes. And um, they have a relationship. They break up. And she basically decides to get this operation. And yep. so he goes Memory to, wipe. Yeah. He goes to see her and kind of try to win her back. And she is like, who are you? I don't know you. And mm-hmm. he quickly discovers, oh, wow, she has had this operation. She has had me erased from her memory. So he decides to get it, too. And he gets it. The night oh. before Valentine's Day. Yeah. That yep. is why we are doing this movie this time. <laughs> <laughs> to cheer you up. Yeah. Because Valentine's don't... Day is so happy. Yeah, don't we sound so happy right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, so kind of the way the film shows this operation is basically he is remembering all these memories and it's showing them that he's had with her and as he's remembering the memories are getting deleted by yeah. the surgeon or the yeah. text. And it's, and it's beautiful the way they do mm-hmm. it. Like, this is, like, right when CGI was coming into its own. Yeah. And it's it's so, like, subtle and, like, pulled back. Like, it's not, like, flashy or whatever. But he'll just be, like, having a conversation with her in a supermarket or something. 
and she'll slowly get blurrier and blurrier and the seed will like the color will kind of drain out of the scene and then and then she'll like whatever he'll go around a corner and the camera will turn and then he'll turn back like she's she's out of frame for a second and he'll turn around and turn back and she's just gone mm -hmm. she's just fucking gone um so at some point he kind of like realizes this is happening and you know he's asleep getting the operation and he realizes he doesn't want this to happen he wants to remember her he wants to hold on to some of the memories and so he starts like fighting against the operation resisting it trying to like run away from the different memories um and so that's kind of the plot that he's trying to fight against it Basically, what happens is the two characters do meet again, kind of after the operation, both having forgotten each other, um, but they find out that they've gotten this operation, and with full knowledge of kind of their history, they decide to get back together and do this whole thing again, and relive it, because it's worth it to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to jump straight into the analysis? Mm-hmm. I think it's important that this is a very near future movie. Like sci-fi is always not really about the aliens, but about us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not really about them. It's a sci-fi is always a commentary on the now. Yeah. But I think it's really important that like they're driving that home right now, right mm -hmm. here, right now. This isn't 20 years in the future and saying, well, that could be us eventually. That's saying this is what we do now. This is us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, before we started watching this movie, yes. um, I was going on a rant about things, as I usually do. <laughs> I rant quite frequently. Um, and I was talking about the way we address trauma as a society. Yeah. Basically, I kind of think that the way we address trauma is sort of from a demonic possession paradigm. Which, if you're like me, it's kind of like... It's really easy to hear that and go like, N -n no, and kind of like pull back from that. Like, no, we solved that in the 1500s. <laughs> but but. <laughs> I think that sometimes we look at trauma as like a demon, basically, like someone is pure and innocent and a victim and nothing is the matter with them. And then something terrible happens and damages their soul and makes them impure and they have a mark on who they are and now we have to rid them of it. Um, it's this almost exorcism of we have to make them pure again. They have to kind of rehearse the trauma, process it, narrativize it, get it. You know, we have this idea that trauma lives in the body and we're constantly remembering it and people need to just you know, talk about it over and over again, expose themselves to it, put it into words so that it no longer lives in the body. We're no longer re-experiencing it over and over again. We kind of regain control over it. We separate it from ourselves and then we kind of never think about it again. Or at least we don't think about it often. We have total control over when we do and don't think about it. It's, it's not something that has control over us. It's not so scary and demonic anymore. Um, yeah, and I think you usually hear that sort of as, you know, oh, you need to go to therapy and mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's a big one is like, you should see someone about that. Yeah. You should go get help for that. 
like when when somebody is I don't know has a bad thing happen to them or has you know or is having a bad time or whatever and it's like oh I know a guy that can fix that Mm -hmm. I know a guy that can make that go away yes yeah um it's kind of this ghost that you have to call um, a team to get out of your house. It's like Ghostbusters. <laughs> but Therapists equal Ghostbusters. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt, sell some merch. Oh, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think a lot about, you know, I'm kind of an academic, I'm a student, I'm in academic spaces a lot, so that's what I, that's what my mind jumps to a lot of times, and there are these... I think it's laws, at least they're university policies almost everywhere. So it must be laws. It must be part of Title IX um, that professors have to report sexual violence. Anytime a student mentions having been sexually assaulted in any way, shape or form, sexually assaulted, sexually harassed on campus, off campus, as a child, as an adult, whatever it is, the professor has to... Sorry, off campus? Yeah. I thought this was just if something happened to you while there was some reasonable uncertainty that it could have happened on the university. Like, I thought it was just to protect the university. We should fact check. I should fact check this, but I'm pretty sure it includes off campus as well. Like, wow. they are being super cautious. Oh. Yeah, at least that's what my professors have told us as a class this semester. I'm in a human sexuality class, uh. and I'm pretty sure her words were like, if you mention being sexually assaulted, I'm going to have to report it. Um, so it used to be that in academic settings, if you were talking about feminism, if you were talking about rape culture in class, that could be a time when you could bring up your own experiences and use that as kind of a way to come to know a source of knowledge about what you're talking about. That, you know, if you've experienced sexual violence, that you kind of have some expertise about rape culture and you can use that to inform your classmates and inform other people about what that's like and why that needs to be changed and what we as a society can do. But now there's kind of this idea that, you know, if you bring that up, that's not something academic. That's not a source of expertise. That's not something that should be inside you. That needs to be brought to the police. That needs to be brought to an attorney. That needs to be brought to victim advocacy services or therapists so that you can kind of it can be policed and regulated and gotten out of you. It's not a part of you that shouldn't be brought up into the academic space. That shouldn't be coloring your studenthood or your studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that sheds a lot of light on it for me about why we're not super comfortable or cool or whatever with, yeah, bringing that in and talking about that and whatever is because it's not you as a person it's just it's this shit it's this baggage you're Mm -hmm. dragging along that's a word that we use oh my god that's a word baggage baggage. yeah that's that's so because it's the idea is that you're carrying it but it's not you your baggage is not an extension Mm -hmm. of your arm Mm -hmm. your suitcase is not your body it's just a thing that you have yes oh my god i feel so much different about the word baggage now yeah oh Mm -hmm. oh this is happening in real time (laughs) oh yeah, I, I do think I think the word baggage is such a good way of describing this. And I mean, that's how we think of all madness or all disability in a lot of ways. But I just really think it applies to trauma, especially. Yeah, that this person is like carrying this thing along with them that we need to separate from them. Yeah, yeah, like 
accost them in the hallway and just like pull out of their hands and throw it out a window and be like, ah, ah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think with other kinds of disabilities, it's exciting. There's like a pride movement. Um, and I, I'm, you know, there's not enough of it. There's not enough awareness that someone might want to consider disability part of their identity as opposed to this baggage they need to get rid of. But there's beginning to be recognition that autistic people, for example, are autistic people and not people with autism. Um, that being autistic is part of many of our identities. We want this to be part of our body minds. We want recognition that it shapes who we are. It's not something we want cured or fixed or separated violently from us through means like applied behavior analysis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Trauma, I don't think there's as much of that recognition because trauma kind of is universally a bad thing. It's a violent thing that happens to you. It, it's not something we want to happen. Um, I was trying to think of a counterexample. I was like trying to think of one <laughs> instance of good trauma. But then I think it wouldn't be called trauma, right? Well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't actually work. Yeah. I but mean, I just want to know that I tried. I think I think we can recognize, like, yeah, there can be some positive consequences. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, the, I can't, the, yeah. The thing itself. Yeah, if someone says, like, this thing happened to me that traumatized me, I'm not going to be like, oh, cool. Like, that sounds <laughs> really exciting. How does, that shape your, how does that shape your writing? <laughs> right, right. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think there needs to be space for this idea that maybe it's not good. Maybe it's not positive. It might not be, like autism where I'm super proud to be autistic and it's exciting and it's interesting, but you know, I'm not going to go around being like, yeah, I'm so happy to have been traumatized. I don't ever want to justify someone suffering by being like, well, it made them who they are, but can there be space for it just being a part of who someone is and just for better or for worse, maybe for worse, um, just a source of knowledge or a source of identity for someone that doesn't need to be so like separated or confined to only certain very particular spheres of life. Yeah. 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 So. <sighs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the framework that we're looking at this movie in. Um, yeah. That I, Cause I think that's ultimately the place that Jim Carrey comes to mm -hmm. is he's very much treating all of his memories of Clem as yeah, as just trauma, as just like, I think he literally, he says something along the lines of like, what a shitty way to waste two years of your life. Mm -hmm. Like, what a, oh man, like after they break up, he's like, he's like, I can't believe I wasted so much time on this chick. This is all, this is all negative. This is all, just, this is just a net loss. We need to just flush it and move on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the point he comes to partway through the movie or whatever is, is that it sucks and it hurts and he's not thrilled about it, but that it ultimately still had a positive impact on him mm -hmm. and that he still, it still has enough value that it, he doesn't want to flush it. Yeah. Um, Which again is different than trauma. I don't know that trauma survivors, a lot of them are saying, well, it ultimately had a positive impact. Yeah, but, no, I'm not saying, yeah. But yeah, I, um, I do think you can see the similarity that both are kind of reaching a place of saying this has had an, an impact on who I am. 
Yeah. This isn't just something that can be entirely separate from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. So there's this quote where the receptionist The quote. Yes, this the is my quote. This is my favorite quote. This is the quote we both like like turn and looked at each other and we're like well, that's the whole podcast. She just said it. Kirsten Dunst just said the whole podcast. Yes. We can go home. <laughs> so Kirsten Dunst, the receptionist of the yes. clinic, um, says <laughs> something of like, babies are so pure and so clean and so free and adults are so different from that. They're this mess of sadness and pain. And Howard, the doctor who has invented this amazing operation, he is able to take away um, the sadness and pain of being an adult and basically restore us back to being babies, restore us back to purity. Wipe you clean. <laughs> yes. Basically an exorcism. Like, that's basically what is promised from an exorcism, that we're pure and then demons have possessed our souls and left this mark and now we need a priest to come exercise us, get the demon free, and we'll be pure again. Except we're doing it with brain scanners and mm -hmm. fancy-looking 2004 computers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I've been going through this whole phase where I've been, like, embarrassed but also excited that, like, everything in the world is like, oh, my God, that's Foucault! <laughs> because, <laughs> because I feel like that's such a phase is, like, College freshmen, right? Like, discover Nietzsche. And then they think they're so fucking deep. And I think that's kind of what they were poking fun at Kirsten Dunst for, too. Is, like, Kirsten Dunst is, like... Like, she doesn't read Nietzsche. She read a book of quotes and pulled a Nietzsche quote out of yeah, there. And it's, yeah. like, fancy philosopher said that. I read it in a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think this, so the whole, the, they're making fun of that kind of thing in the movie. But I don't fucking care. Because it's so feels applicable right now. Yeah. That I don't know. One of the things that Foucault talks about is that like the ways that like the world hasn't actually gotten better. It's just we've gotten better at dressing up the shitty parts mm -hmm. of it, mm -hmm. and that like I don't know, state the power of the state or whatever. You know, they used to uh, you know guillotine people out in the town square, and we don't do that anymore. We put them in a courtroom that nobody attends and you know in a jury that's not really paying attention then we stick them in a jail cell mm -hmm. and forget about them mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and like i don't know to the person in the jail cell like both are pretty fucked up yes but it looks so much nicer we have criminal justice reform and he had a lawyer he had a lawyer emily yes and so it must be better right we've we've progressed yeah yeah or or my favorite which is kind of we used to think of homosexuality similar to trauma <laughs> demonic possession i think because we thought of it as being caused by trauma sometimes um or demonic possession and it used to be kind of very violently cruelly addressed people were locked up or exercised or things like that um but you know in the 1900s it began being addressed probably 1800s 1900s i don't know about the timeline but it began being addressed as a disease as an illness it was so much more compassionate mm. we feel sorry for them we don't hate them and it began being psychiatrized and i think that that's just kind of the perfect example of how we just dress things up very nicely but it's still being you know. let's roll it forward one more step 
mm-hmm. to um, the AIDS crisis. Yeah. We don't kill the gays anymore. Right. <laughs> we just let them die. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's still not seen as genocide. That's nope. still not seen as like the horrific violence that it was. It's, you know, Reagan is still glorified, but she's still glorified. Oh my gosh. When, when George W. Bush died, that was so yeah. surreal. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was so surreal because it was so effective. Everybody talked about all the amazing things that he did. Yeah. And people going, no, 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 but he passed the ADA. I'm like, <laughs> like, I genuinely, like, I didn't know that much about him before. And, like, that formed my impression of him mm. for, like, a couple months until I actually, like, started yeah. reading other shit. But, yeah. um, but, yeah, we, I don't know. What am I trying to get at? He, AIDS crisis, AIDS crisis, George. H.W. Bush, people died, but we, but then he died and we all told each other that he was a nice man. Yeah, yeah. Basically just all the ways that we dress things up and they look really nice and you pass the ADA. So as long as you're productive as a disabled person. And by, yeah. This nice man, our president, George Bush, will just love you. It's not like Hitler, but then, you know, if, if you're unproductive or if you have sex that's considered dirty and you're disabled, you know, by HIV AIDS, like then all of a sudden now we're going to like leave you to die and be like horrifically cool to you. And, but, but let's not talk about that. Well, and also by past the ADA, we really mean didn't bother to veto. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He didn't write the bill. It was a, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, political. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> and but that's the other thing is like what we consider political or not, right? That Ooh. like we, what can be separate? Yeah, what yeah. can be separated out as the self versus just a, a political thing that's not really. We don't talk about that. Right. Right. That okay. This is this is a thing. I'm just Ezra Klein has, has this really great theme that he keeps like looping back to that is this like idea that he's like planted in my head that is that all politics are identity politics Mm -hmm. but if you're the majority your identity is just politics yes your identity is defined as politics and it it may not even majority in power if Mm -hmm. you're in power your identity is just politics and part of that power is to be able to label everyone else as being from an identity and thus not as valid. Yes, absolutely. Like, what? Like, I don't know. Just like, again, like stew on that for a moment. The like, I don't know. People dying in the AIDS crisis. That's, that's, (laughs) that should be right. That like, that's in popular lingo or whatever. Like, I don't know. That's, that's politics. Sorry, I didn't mean to get political. Right. That's like, controversial. Yeah, that's 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 controversial. That's there political. are valid points on both sides. Yeah, and that's of people dying. Yeah. Horrifically. Cool. Yeah. And that's but that's that's the same as like baggage. That's that's yes. an external thing that yes. you are carrying around with you. Leave that at the door for a minute. <laughs> it's just baggage, right? It's not like it's attached to your arm. Right. Right. And that it's so interesting too <laughs> how that like. That collective memory of, like, this horrific AIDS crisis is still very much living in the body minds of people who had to live through that, of people who saw their friends and family members dying 
and being refused medical treatment. That was 30 years ago. Yeah, that's nothing. And yet, yeah, there's still this idea of like, that's a political issue that, you know, we can have sides on and can be this, you know, compartmentalized part of us that we either are, you know, for or against or support or not more AIDS treatment or whatever. And it's like, no, like this, this is like a recent memory that like lives with the body minds of, of people who survived that. It's a scar. Yeah. Scar upon the American psyche. Yeah. Which is maybe a better way to think about it. Like scars heal, but scars are still scars. Yeah. I don't know. I think for some people it's an open wound. Okay. And that's okay too. That's yeah. okay too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, in the sense of, like, we need space for that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 valid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Similarly, similarly, I think the way the movie addresses this, mm-hmm. or the way the movie sort of interacts with this idea, I guess, is that they kind of try to separate the past from the present. Like, entirely. Like, that's kind of the the thesis of the, I don't know, the people in the movie, right? Is that your past is just, I don't know, a chunk of time. And you can just, you know, uh, separate yourself from it. And that it didn't affect you. It doesn't matter. It just happened. And now it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You are not the past. The past is not you. Therefore, yeah, I don't know, baggage, right? Like, just put the baggage down, man. Mm -hmm. Just put the baggage down here. I'll take it from you. Yeah. And I think that very much aligns with kind of the philosophy of a lot of different trauma therapies. There's this idea of like, oh, the person is re-experiencing the trauma as if it's in the present and we need them to not do that. The healthy way is to put it in the past and for them to really know that that happened in the past, that that isn't happening currently right now. Yeah. 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 And it just, I don't know. I it, it struck me, and I, I think certainly is <laughs> <coughs> certainly is, certainly it's expressed through the film, right? Like that, like the past and the present are not so not so fucking separate mm-hmm. that they really are commingled. And I loved all the different ways that they showed that in the movie, all the ways that Jim Carrey could be in a memory, but then experiencing the present, right? Like the present, you know, quote unquote, whatever being that he's got his head in a giant steel helmet and there's people in his living room, uh, having sex in his recliner. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's the present, but then also that's in it, that's affecting the past, but then the past is interacting with that present. And he's, you know, all these little ways where he's like, I don't know, someone's in his living room and they're talking about Clementine and they're like, yeah, and we're going to erase that chick. And, but then in the, that that's in the quote unquote, like present or whatever, but then it's echoing back and in the quote unquote past, he's like living in the memory and he hears that and he's like, Clem, they're going to erase you. And she's like, so what are you going to do about it? And he's like, gosh, I don't know. And then they like have a plan and they go and they do stuff. And like, but that everything, that it all mixes in with itself and even all the ways that the memories shape who he is, even after the brain wipe, he is still the person that knew Clem Mm -hmm. and dated Clem. Even if he like, 
even if he doesn't remember it, even if he doesn't remember why, like that doesn't change the fact that he is fundamentally altered for having had that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, I don't know, the, he wants to go to Montauk. Like all the little things, the reasons they fall for each other again, right? All the little ways that they've shaped each other around each other. Mm-hmm. And just, I don't know. Yeah, so like to tie that back to trauma, I guess, like... Yeah. It's not fucking separate, dude. Right, right. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, like yeah, that, that changes how you see the world and interact with stuff. Absolutely. I also, I just really love the way that they show his past memories. They show some, some childhood memories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he oh, man. is, like, back to being in a child's body. Or, yes. Like, I love what they do with his embodiment. That he's, like, he still has his face and he still looks like... Jim Carrey, but he's, like, child-sized, um, and he's, like, genuinely very scared, um, or he, like, really wants his mother to hold him, and, yeah, it's just, it's really, I love how they do that, how they show that these memories are still with us. We can still be thinking about our childhoods and, like, feel the way that we felt as a child. It's not so easy to just intellectualize it and go, yeah, so XYZ happened when I was a child and narrativize it and make it into words. You know, it's still in our bodies. We still feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think if I have anything to add to that or if I'm just repeating what you, <laughs> what you said. Because it just, if it was... That he, yeah, he was. It, it's, I'm thinking of the kitchen scene in particular, but he he absolutely is adult Jim Carrey, but he's but in that moment, in that memory, he's also not like it's like layered back onto him that he's like re re experiencing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, like he still feels all those same needs, and that's still in him somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of my favorite scenes um, was that he went back to a time when he was bullied um, Mm. by a bunch of other boys. And, um, yeah, he's, like, getting bullied by them, and he's, like, very humiliated and um, feeling very scared. And then he's about to kind of leave that memory behind, and then he's like, you know what, I'm not scared of you anymore, and is about to go, like, beat the bullies up or whatever and be like I'm bigger now (laughs) and um just like totally fails or um yeah one of them like puts him in an arm lock yeah yeah and I just love that because yeah that's such a trope of like oh yeah like we grow up and we overcome the bullying within ourselves and we defeat the bullies and we realize that it was so stupid and we put it in the past where it belongs and we're new people who have overcome now and yeah 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 go us (laughs) i love that it's like nope like he's still a scared little kid and that's part of him and that's reality (laughs) yeah like i can't point to a specific movie where that actually happens all i can point to now is movies making fun of that yeah yeah like i don't know like like step brothers does a thing with that too where they just they go they go back and uh as adults, you know, Will Ferrell probably was a 40-year-old actor at this point, uh, goes back to a playground, just beats the shit out of some <laughs> random middle schooler just to prove they can as, like, <laughs> 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 uh, 
But that, you know, like that's their redemption scene. That's their standing up for themselves moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy that that trope is being made fun of. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We can finally actually step back from that a little bit. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I think Talladega Nights was sort of making fun of that trope a little bit too. Not the bullying. Okay. But um, the idea of like the reconciliation with your parents when his father... Mm -hmm comes back to the game or whatever yeah. he's gonna see it and then sells the ticket <laughs> yeah will ferrell's reserved these tickets for yes. his daddy at every race for 10 years and finally his dad does show up you know hears about this comes to the race gets the tickets immediately hawks him for 30 bucks <laughs> yeah. i kind of really like that though i think i think that's like pointing to something in the trauma narrative that's like so such an easy target to make fun of Because it's so false, right? Like, it's so cliche and it's so false and it's so untrue. We have this idea of, like, the cathartic moment of reconciliation where the demon goes away, right? Like, you face your demons and you battle them off and you win and they go away forever and you live happily ever after. Like, that's just bullshit. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm sure in some circumstances that's true and, like, I'm not trying to say... Don't ever go to trauma therapy. Trauma therapy is stupid. That's not what I'm saying. Obviously, sometimes that helps and that's great. But like, I I do think we have this narrative of like, it's like a one time thing and you let it go and you get over it and you're past it. And like, I don't know, I I love that, like, the films that we're doing in this podcast are like, making fun of that and poking fun and just being like, no, that's false. And like, we've all come to know that that's not true. (laughs) yeah man yeah no i think that's so important that i don't know movie logic like defines our entire like understanding of the world Mm -hmm. like i i will never forget like when in my young formative years right I don't know, we're going to say high school into early college. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of like crack.com mm-hmm. and I listened to the crack podcast, man, that like shaped me and made me who I am. But one of the things that they said early on, like, like one of the, the observations was like, cause they did a lot of like debunking style articles, like six things you thought you knew about history that are secretly false. Mm-hmm. And they said their, their rubric, their metric, whatever for whether or not people actually believe it is if you can point to it in a movie. Mm. If it happened in a movie, then that's the only thing people will imagine. Like they, they had an entire article that like, they, you know, they showed like pictures of Russia in the summer and it's like green and there's trees and there's mud and it's sunny and it's nice and it's 75, 80 degrees. And they, and they said, look, the only thing you see in movies, if someone's going to go to Moscow in the movie, the only thing, you know, the production is they, they, they're, they're doing it for one scene. They want it to scream Russia. What yeah. screams Russia? Snow. Russia, mm-hmm. snow, Moscow. Perfect. There's no reason to show Moscow in the summer because it looks like any other goddamn city. Right. And so that's the only thing we can think of. And that's, but my point is that, like, that's movie logic is, like, everything yeah. about how we understand the world. And I don't know if that's chicken or egg. Like, do we make movies the way that we want to tell stories or, mm-hmm. or did this format like overtake our understanding of uh, reality? But either way, it's so, yeah, it's so important to like call out and like high five with 
the movies they kind of break from that yes absolutely yeah um so i also <laughs> loved that the movie um i felt like discussed medical ethics um, and it oh, portrayed right. issues surrounding medical ethics really well yeah i completely forgot about this like whole subplot because it had been a couple years since i saw this and i completely forgot what a just ass just a raging asshole um elijah wood is but then also the the, the fucking memory doctor guy mm-hmm. people suck <laughs> but also it's not just the people suck it's the like Let's look at systems of power and what do we, you know, what do we define as ethical and how do we, how are they navigating this space? And yeah, I don't know. There's a lot more to unpack there than just like, ah, what an asshole. But like, just, just as a, just a surface level reading, like, fuck, man, I'm like watching the movie going like, oh no. Oh, I don't like this guy anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah. How, wow. how is medicine used to like serve certain purposes and reify certain goals while kind of yeah marginalizing or abusing other people yeah and again i think it's so important that this movie is set in now america Mm -hmm. today like this is again like this shit happens yeah this is happening now pay attention Mm -hmm. yeah so there's a couple different subplots um one is that one of the staffers, um, or I guess like technicians, maybe. He looks like the lowliest of the lowest tech. Like he's the coffee fetcher. Yeah. yeah. Elijah Wood. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't necessarily seem like they're all medically certified. Oh or, God, no. Yeah, except maybe the doctor himself. But and maybe the uh, the second in command, the yeah, brain guy, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Elijah Wood, he's kind of this, I guess, technician type or intern or something. And um, he basically, while he's doing the operation on Clementine or assisting with it, he um, finds out kind of a bunch of information about her relationship with um, Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. And he says that he like falls in love with her or whatever. And mm-hmm. he steals her underwear, mm-hmm. and then he basically um, acts out all the scenes with Jim Carrey, or kind of pretends to be him, in order to get with Clementine. Um, and so she's with him. I never understood that. Actually, like, just... That, like... There's... And maybe, maybe the point is just that he's stupid, mm-hmm. or that he didn't think about this, but, like just i don't know operationally mechanically mm-hmm. like don't they sort of hint that like there's little bits of the memory still left there like she clearly seems to be having like flashbacks or like deja vu every time he'll like say something that was in her diary from like a memory that was wiped yeah. she'll say something she'll like kind of like tense up and look into the middle distance yeah and like there's still something there and like i don't know stop doing it dude yeah yeah i, I don't know just just like that, that, that plot line didn't quite make sense well, to me. Well, I but. think that was, like, the point they were trying to get at is that, like, he doesn't care how she feels. Oh. Um, which we'll talk about gender. I want to talk about okay. kind of the, the gender roles and how they play around with that. Um, but, yeah, I think he doesn't, like, care how she feels. He just wants to, he, you know, the point is he, like, falls for her while she's unconscious. 
getting this operation. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah, like, quote, unquote, falls in love with her. You know, he's just into her appearance or whatever. And, like, he's not thinking at all what, what's going through okay. her head. How is she feeling? He's just thinking about how can I have sex with her, I think. Guy, yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, no, that's, that's important. That's, that makes it so much more sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he is, he's just, it's, it's almost like creepy. It's like serial killer creepy. He's like, deta- he's like saying all these, like, they'll show Jim Carrey and he's like clearly having just like, he's like beaming, he's like radiating and he's like, I could just die right here. He's like, this is the happiest I've ever been. I could just die right here and I'd be so happy. <laughs> and at this point, they've been going at it for what a year or two or something. Yeah, yeah. And then Elijah Wood is like been dating her for three days, and he like rushes her out onto the ice to like reenact this scene from her memory. And he's like, "I feel so happy. I could just die right here. Isn't this amazing?" And she's like, she's like kind of like clenched up and like looking around, like very stressed. And he's like, "This is amazing. I could just die right here. I am so happy." It's so creepy. It's so fucking creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because he doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, and then the other kind of subplot that goes on is the receptionist, Kirsten Dunst, Mm -hmm. um, has like a crush on the doctor, um, Mm -hmm. Howard, Mm -hmm. who's performing the surgery. And she's kind of into him she kind of flirts with him they start kissing and then the doctor's wife um drives by and Mm -hmm. she like sees them kissing and she like asks her husband like aren't you gonna tell her um no she says don't be a monster howard yeah 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 tell her and then um because kirsten dunst is apologizing and saying i'm sorry i just had a stupid crush um and the wife says yeah don't be a monster tell her and the doctor says, um, yeah, like, I, we have a history, and you decided to get the operation. You decided. Yeah, you wanted it. <laughs> and you had your memory erased. And then you kind of find out that, um, you, you hear the, like, tape recording from when she was getting it. And you see that she kind of was pressured into it. Or he says, we decided this would be best on tape. Yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, Howard, I can't do this. And, and he says, no, 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 this is for the best. Yeah, yeah. Like, whoa. Ugh. Yeah. Um, creepy. Yeah, very creepy. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I really liked that kind of questioning of, like, who is this operation for? Like, who is benefiting? Um, how, yeah, how does it serve those in power? How does it... Um, yeah, how, how does it serve the systems of power, which I think is a question we should always be asking about medicine and, and a question we should always be asking about this kind of like demonic possession like paradigm we have about trauma. Who is that benefiting this this idea of separating the past or saying, yeah, this is an isolated incident or saying we're not going to bring experiences of sexual violence into academic spaces? You know, who does that serve? And I think it serves people in power. I think it serves to perpetuate the abuses because it's kind of a very individualizing framework of like, this this is your issue, this is your baggage, and you need to separate it and so that you can walk into this space without the baggage as opposed to this baggage is representative of something about how the world works. 
Yeah. Um, your trauma does not happen out of context and you need to figure out, you know, what are the systemic factors at play? Um, if we kind of keep people silent, if we uh, keep people separated from their trauma, then they're not going to challenge the power dynamics at play or people won't, people in power won't have to hear information that might challenge them, that, that might make them feel uncomfortable um, about, you know, their own privilege. Yeah, or even if they do try to bring it up or whatever, like, if it's, like, already established that, that oh, no, that's not a thing we talk about, mm-hmm. then it's super hard to be, uh, I don't know, Christine Blasey Ford, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's it, that, that's not a thing that we talk about, and you don't bring that in here. Right, right. Like, like it's not even about, well, it, and it is about, but it's, it's more than just separating the person in power it's not just the person in power having a, a tool to to push the other per the, the you know the other person out it's setting up all these concentric rings of systems around that where they don't have to push them out they don't have to interact with them they don't have to see it it doesn't exist right right this is not an appropriate subject to talk about if you have issues concerning trauma you should go talk about that with a therapist do not talk about that here yeah yeah um I think that that's like a really, really effective way to make sure that those in power don't have to hear about the trauma they are causing <laughs> to other people. I just like beer. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to think of a better Kavanaugh quote. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He's such a punching bag. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. He's the punching bag of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Of the times. And he's a good example of someone who does this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I. Um, I definitely, I, I like that the movie kind of raises that question. Um, when we medicalize something, what what purpose does it serve? Yeah, what are we separating and putting away in a box far off on the side? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about gender. Okay, all right. Movie. Give me some gender. <laughs> um, yeah, or just the way that, like, relationships are portrayed i think the movie is like very aware of the manic pixie dream girl okay yeah um cliche like so kate winslet is i think all through the beginning portrayed as this manic pixie dream girl and they like set it up to be 500 days of summer Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. he's like kind of chasing after her and she's like flighty and impulsive and she's crazy um, but in a cute way, yeah. so it's okay. Um, but then, like, toward the end, there's this memory <coughs> where um, they're, like, first meeting, and she says, like, I'm not a concept. I'm not going to save your life. Um, I'm just, what does she say? I'm just a girl. I'm a fucked wants. up girl trying to find my own peace of mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I felt like in that moment, it, it The movie turned around, looked straight into the camera, and said, like, you know you're the problem, right? Right, yeah. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. I, I did feel like it was very, like, self-aware of the male gaze that you, um, you have these relationships where these women are being, like, objectified and used and, um, yeah, kind of, I, I think especially with Kate Winslet's relationship with Elijah Wood, you kind of see her being set up as this, like, he just sees her as this concept, as this stereotype that's gonna, yeah, like, save him or whatever and who cares about her feelings um and I think Jim Carrey 
thinks of her that way at first, and then he also kind of becomes more aware of that and wants to do better. Do you think that's the difference between however you want to call it, their first relationship and their second mm-hmm. relationship? So. Is that he wakes up after the wipe and gets to know the real her and realizes that, like, because then they listen to the tapes, right? Like, they record these yeah. tapes. They go into the... And that's the thing, is they go into the doctor's office in this, like, I don't know, state of just, like, whatever, despair and anguish and pain and whatever. And they say, tell me about this person that you're trying to forget. And they just sit there and they just rant for hours. Like, he just has this hours-long tape where he's going, oh, my God, and she dyes her hair. What are you in fucking high school? What kind of rebellion is that? Like... I can't show she thinks it's so cute. She dyes her hair like, oh, now it's orange. I'm so rebellious. Get over yourself. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. You know, and he goes through this whole thing and it's, but they, they just have these tapes of like just spewing all the worst things that they hate about each other. And then, yeah. And then they sort of say, okay, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to get, bored and you're gonna get restless and we're gonna fight and I'm gonna get shitty about that thing that you do again Mm -hmm. all right all right you're worth it yeah yeah and I I do think that is the difference between the first and second relationship is like he does come to see her as more than a manic pixie dream girl that's cool yeah I definitely just thought of I, I I hadn't I was so, how do you say, people have already described her mm-hmm. as a Manic Pixie dream girl in other places. Yeah. And so I just went in mentally going like, yep, 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 Manic Pixie, mm-hmm. nothing to see here, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't fully process, I guess. I didn't yeah. fully like stop and go like, oh, that's not true by the end of the movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think she still is to some extent, but I just think the movie is self-aware of that because of that whole I'm not a concept speech that she gives twice. Yeah. And, like, it's very emphatic. He remembers it and everything. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you still don't think it's fully solved? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they have enough screen time to yeah. fully resolve it. Right. I do think, though, it does much better than, you know, I, I remember I watched this in college. and like, mm-hmm. I remember we were comparing it with 500 Days of Summer. Oh. And okay. it obviously does just way better than that. She really is her own person. She is a character. You at least, you see her suffer. Like, I think. Yeah. Yeah. She's not just floating through the world. Yeah. Like, Summer is not like a person. She's like this floaty, like, mystical, like, angel who never feels sad or whatever. Um, I do think Kate Winslet can be read as mad. Like, I, I think she very much is struggling, and she asks, do you think I'm ugly? And, um, yeah, and she's, like, really genuinely hurt by what Jim Carrey tells her. Yeah. I wrote down, I was, like, trying to find, like, like the word for it or like what would we what would someone describe that as mm-hmm. like wow I, I was like you know would, would some would they say she's codependent is 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 she supposed to be borderline like what is so. and i just i don't know i came away like i just it's just like com- like 
overly, overpoweringly feminine. Mm. In, in all the ways that femininity is expressed in movies, she's just that taken up to 11. Which is borderline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the borderline stereotype. Yeah, I felt like she was kind of coded as borderline a little bit. Um, and I guess, was he coded as, like, depressed? Or was he also coded as a bit borderline in, like, a male way? Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I know they were playing around quite a bit with this nice guy idea. Yeah, oh yeah, constantly just like nice. You're not nice, find a different adjective. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't know what quite what to make of him as much. Like yeah. I felt like she was so clearly like a caricature or stereotype or whatever, and I was like Jim like I don't know, I, I had a hard time looking past Jim Carrey as just Jim Carrey. Yeah. It's like that's Jim Carrey, but it's serious Jim Carrey. Yeah. I felt like he was, like, doing the nice guy trope at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's nice. He's a nice guy, so why can't she be with him? Why can't she save him from his depression? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the end, it's, like, yeah, more complex than that. Yeah. 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 Huh. Yep. Yeah. I thought I had something more to add to that, but just... Yep, he's checking all the boxes of the generic nice guy. Yeah. Kind of quiet, a little bit awkward, but great once you talk to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What did you think about Kirsten Dunst and her character? Oh. Um, a little bit... It, it definitely at first... Definitely at first also thought, like, oh, good, we have a secondary Manic Pixie. (laughs) Like, she is just even more, even more than Kate Winslet, right? She just is floaty and smiley. Oh, thank you. And let me get you a beer. And no, that's great. Oh, that's so fascinating. I read a Nietzsche quote in a magazine. We should play the clash and dance in our underwear and smoke pot and just have... (laughs) Isn't life wonderful? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I thought similarly it was just, the movie was just, like, crushing that. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't know, throwing that on the ground and stomping on it and going, like, this doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, what did you think? Yeah, I also, <laughs> yeah, I felt like the movie, again, was just, like, very self-aware. And, yeah, very, very aware of the male gaze, very aware of the way that women are usually portrayed in film and just trying to question that and challenge that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, all the ways that the guys in the movie, like, I'm just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, even, like, Mark Ruffalo isn't, like, great to her. Right, right. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo, like, just generally is not great. He, like, hears about this Elijah Wood situation and doesn't really do anything to stop him. It's he's like, dude, like, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, he's like, dude, you stole your panties. And Elijah Wood's like, why are you staring at me like that? Stop looking at me like that. And then they both just laugh and move on with their lives. Like, hey, man, you want to, you know, yep. bring me one of those things, you know. 
Which again is it's fascinating though that Mark's Mark Ruffalo's choice of words was like, I don't want to hear about that. He was yeah, like, Stop yeah, talking yeah. about that. It's like again, this idea of just forgetting, like just like don't tell me, don't let it come into my consciousness and then it won't bother me. I won't have to yeah. deal with it. This needs to yep. <laughs> outside of the sphere of what I need right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I also just liked the way that the movie portrayed um, the traumatizing and I think dehumanizing nature of medicine at times. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. um, kind of as an aside from the rest of the themes, just uh, Jim Carrey kind of getting this operation that he like doesn't want and is trying to fight against and is kind of powerless to stop. And oh, I just and I, there's no and there's no stopping every every sign yeah. that maybe there should be a stop yeah. is like push. It, it's a reason to push harder. Mm -hmm. His mm -hmm. eyes open and they go, uh oh, better inject him with something. He like runs away from the memories and they go, that's funny. We'll have to wipe harder. Like, right. ah, my there there is no point where this, these people will stop. There is no hint strong enough. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, I just, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, the, the powerlessness that yeah. it showed. Yeah. I was, if I can, if I can skip along to the next mm -hmm. idea, which is just, holy shit, they mail cards out to every single person in your life that says, Joel doesn't remember that his girlfriend exists. Never mention her again. Mm -hmm please. Thank you. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like that is so creepy. Mm -hmm. That is so. God, just imagine everybody in your life and we're, we're all complicit in this. I think is the thing like this, this sort of erasure, like we're all complicit in allowing it to fade and allowing it to be boxed out and put away. Yeah. And it just, it's, it's so creepy to think about that, that everybody around you is part of a conspiracy mm -hmm. to, yeah, about, yeah, I do. Again, like, it, it's, it's a freaky metaphor and like, oh man, you can map it onto so many things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really creepy. It kind of reminds yeah. me of like the Truman Show and that. Huh. It like makes yeah, question yeah, yeah. reality a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Similar. I, I think this is related. I'm not entirely sure. Also, maybe like help help me like flesh this out a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was super fascinated when they, when they're coming in to Jim Carrey's apartment and they're like bang something on the door mm -hmm. and Mark Ruffalo turns around and goes, Shh, quiet. Yeah. Like it's it's still just a, a little bit taboo, just a smidge, just a smidge taboo still like they're doing it in public. They're yeah. advertising publicly. They're putting it on, you know, their whatever phone calls and billboards and promotions and what have you. And it, but, but it's still, it's still the kind of thing you don't want to advertise that you're going into someone's apartment to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, and I think that's part of the like conspiracy thing again. Like, like I don't know. We are the shadows. <laughs> yeah. You're not supposed to see this. You're not supposed to understand this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, speed round? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Maybe. No, one big idea left. Oh. One big idea left. Okay. Are your memories alive? Oh. Because Jim Carrey's are. Yeah. Because Clem, in his mind, 
is real and is doing she has agency Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she has agency and she makes choices she has her own agenda and motives and she gets tired of running i'm tired of running joel why are we still running he's like no they're gonna get you and she's like but i'm so fucking tired and if that was his you know if that's all in his brain then he can just make that up right he can just imagine her as having infinite stamina but no and she fights him and also they have separate memories that like there are things that genuinely surprise her, even though she exists in his head. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know. I just... That that was kind of what I kept gravitating back to in this movie, was just, like, trying... Like, like what do memories feel like? Mm-hmm. What do memories... What do memories... Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think memories are alive. Yeah. It's again this idea that like the past is not the past. <laughs> it's the present. It's ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. And we said, you know, I can't remember anything without you. Mm-hmm. I can't remember anything without you. Like, I don't know. Yeah, memory's so malleable, and we really do, like, I, I think, like, reinterpret the past into the framework of the present. Like, the past is not the past. The past is a convenient set of semi-facts that we can stitch together to make sense of whatever the fuck we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, I think that's what he's trying to describe when he says, like, I can't remember anything without you, is that, like, she is, like, inextricably now. Not only, not only is she part of who he is in the present, mm-hmm. it's retroactive, too. She is part of his past his understanding of his past self is shaped by her like you can't that's the thing you can't just cut her the fuck out because she is in everything she shaped how he understands his past she has shaped how he is in the present like i don't know like yeah yeah that's such a good point it's like what i don't know and that's what i just keep coming back to is like what does memory feel like Mm -hmm. and how does memory like i don't know the, the flashlight thing the whole flashlight mechanic. Like, I think that's absolutely... <laughs> I don't know about you. Like, that's what memories feel like to me, I guess. Like, I think... That the flashlight better... When, when there's, a, there's a lot of scenes where, like, Jim Carrey will be walking through a party and, the, and there's, like, one spotlight, like, kind of on his face and you can kind of see Clem and everything else outside of that is just... falls off really quickly. There's someone there, but they're not... The light's not po- pointed on that person... Yeah. And so they don't really exist. You get the set, you get the sort of the sense and the outline of a party, but you don't remember any of that because the spotlight's not pointed on it. That's yeah. not what you are remembering. Yeah, that's really, yeah, it's very true. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I thought it, it's just such a good movie, like visualizing and yes. feeling and understanding, like what does it mean to remember something? Yeah. Fuck, it's so good. It really is. Now I'm ready for the speed round. <laughs> okay. Um, her hair color means something. I don't entirely know what. This is a really kind of useless bullet point. I was trying to figure out some sort of hair color pattern or hair color, like color theory. I was trying to figure out color theory for the movie and I didn't. So that's my bullet point. Your turn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just love their dialogue at the very beginning. Um, this, the beginning is actually their meeting for the second time. Um, but they don't know that they're meeting for the second time. They think mm-hmm. they're meeting for the mm-hmm. um, But 
Yeah, he says, um, she says something like, jokingly, I'm kind of a vindictive bitch. And she, and he says, oh, I wouldn't think that about you. And she says, why? Why wouldn't you think that about me? Um, and I <laughs> Yeah, just, she immediately is like, is almost like, not, I don't want to say offended, but it's like, you're lying. Yeah, and just but like also, doesn't buy it. But also like, stop making assumptions about me, like... Stop projecting mm. your ideas about who I am onto me because you see my appearance and you decide, oh, you look great. You mm. must be nice. Um, yeah, your interpretation is better. <laughs> Let's do yours. <laughs> he says, um, you seem nice. And she says, like, stop saying that about me. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't need nice. I don't need it. And I don't need anybody to be it. Um, yeah, I, I felt like she was really saying, like, I don't want to be idolized. Like, I don't want to be put on this pedestal and, like, forced to like maintain this persona that you think I am like, mm, I just mm, want to be real yeah oh that's good um yeah I I loved all the little hints that like for me like when he like the first scene he goes out you know wakes up in the morning Goes out to his car. His car's all scuffed up. He writes, he writes a shitty note to the guy next to him, but like passive aggressive shitty. You know, his car's fucked up. He thinks someone else did that to him. Ah, curse you. Mm. But then we see pretty quickly, we go back. We're in a memory. Like it sort of jump cuts and you don't know if it's going forward or backward. And he's like crying. He's like, Clem broke up with me. And so you don't know what's going forward or backwards or whatever. Um, but you see his car and his car has a big and she like parks his car into a fire hydrant and has this big scuff down the side. Mm-hmm. And that I don't know. Like they didn't have to say anything. They didn't yeah. have to say anything. That was just a great visual tiny way of cluing like <clears throat> flashback. Yeah. And it I don't know. I love that. I love yeah. that. Like it was just good. Mm-hmm. Good craftsmanship. Um I just wrote that for the surgery, he has to like bring everything that reminds her, that reminds him of her, like all objects and everything, um, to the um, clinic, I guess, and so that he'll wake up. They say like he'll wake up to an empty home, empty life, as if nothing happened. It's a new life, <laughs> and a soulless, hollow life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just felt like, man, like, that really is a demonic possession. <laughs> You're being, like, cleansed of, <laughs> of this, like, ghost in the house. Yeah. Oh, and that poor woman in the waiting room. There was a woman in the waiting room who had what looked like like a children's, like, bowling trophy or something. Like, I don't know. I, I, I read that as, like, her son died, and she's here to get that memory erased. And I'm like, mm. oh, God, that is so. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's just, that's, like heartbreaking and gross like not gross for her but just like oh man who are we man what does it mean (laughs) yeah what does it mean to be alive yeah i don't like it It, it made me feel all sorts of weird feeling it's just that that one and and again like craftsmanship like shit man that was an extra holding Mm -hmm. holding a box with like a children's trophy sticking out the side and they just put that in the waiting room yeah. next to, Jin, you know, out, kind of out of frame and just like, oh, that like craftsmanship. Yeah. 
that your note? Yeah, that was my note. That was okay. all I got. Okay. Um, yeah, I also had um, just that they say, the doctor says, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage. Well, when he says, will there be any brain damage, doctor? He's like, well, it is brain damage. Yes. Um, and then also that kind of when they're doing the surgery, they have to go over to Jim Carrey's house to kind mm-hmm. of do it so that he'll wake up in his bed. Um, and they basically, um, yeah, like they're kind of chatting the Elijah Wood and Mark Ruffalo and they're just kind of talking and, um, they're, they're just using language. Like, can we just get through this? Let's just get this done, um, about this surgery. And just, I, I mm-hmm. felt like that they did a really good job again, just showing like it's so dehumanizing. He's not like a patient. They're not showing him any like care or concern. They're just, he's just kind of this like object that they have to fix yeah yeah there's no like oh dude that must be really hard for you i'm so sorry yeah like you're making the right choice not no, not even any of that not the, the mm. yeah Ugh. um yeah and similarly like when they go over to his apartment man they're digging through his apartment and his brain with just this like disdain and like boredom like they're walking around, they're like commenting on how he decorates. They're like, I don't know, it's kind of uninspired. Smells a little stale. Yeah. You know, oh, what you got in this cabinet? So oh, that's it. <laughs> like, oh my god, you're in you're you're in his house drinking all of his booze and like eating his pie. Like, have some respect. This is a like ah yeah. it's the same thing. It's all the same thing. They don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have, um, uh, again, just, um, like the claims to knowledge that are kind of Mm. being asserted about Clementine, I think throughout the film, but especially by Jim Carrey, um, in one of the early scenes, they're in this fight and she comes home and she's like, are you worried that I like stayed out and fucked someone? he says, I assume you fuck someone. Isn't that how you get people to like you? Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, just kind of, like, all these assumptions being like, projected onto her like, mm-hmm. at first. That, and it kind of, like, Madonna horror assumptions, like, at first, like, oh, you seem nice. You don't seem like you could ever be a vindictive bitch. You know, you're just a nice girl, like, innocent, blah, blah, blah. And then now it's, like, you're a total horror. You fuck someone. And that's how you get people to like you. It's it's just these like projections. She never gets to just be her own person. Yeah. Yeah, and especially it's especially double powerful because they put them right next to each other. Mm, yeah. They're like they're like she's the Madonna in the first few scenes, and then you know and there's a couple things in between, but it's still you know easily the front end of the first act. I know you fucked someone. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, I am out of notes. Yeah, me too. Sweet. Cool. That's a podcast. Yes. That we recorded. (laughs) Tell us what you think. And leave us some comments and some feedback and some notes and some thoughts and some reactions. We had someone after the the Hulk episode. We've had people reach out to us with other Marvel characters and other pitches for Mm -hmm. that. Like, please, yes. Mm -hmm. Like... Tell us what you think. Point us to other media. 
that you want to see covered and dissected and talked about and bounced around and uh yeah if we have any good comments from you guys we love reading comments on air like shit man interact yeah yeah on facebook because that's where we usually are yes mm -hmm. well mad love bye